My wife often asks me on Saturday night, what are you going to preach about tomorrow? And I usually tell her. Um, but I thought I would preempt her question last night by just telling her what I was going to preach about this morning. So I said, honey, I'm going to be preaching about kissing tomorrow morning. <laughs> she laughed. <clears throat> I said, no, I'm serious, I insisted. She said, well, then I'm nervous. But it's a fair subject for us to consider. Someone has well said that the enchanted wonders of all the world are contained in a kiss. And it has a very important impact on all humanity. But also because there's a fair amount of kissing going on in the Bible. And without going over all the references, of which there are at least 50, let me categorize them for you, just quickly. Uh, one of the largest categories of kissing in the Bible is between family and close friends. Just an example, the, the scripture tells us in the New Testament that we are to greet one another with a holy kiss, a verse, by the way, that we don't practice around here very much for some obvious reasons. But in the Mediterranean area, the people would greet one another. It was the common greeting. It was the acceptable way to say hello and goodbye, a kiss on either side of the cheek. And so you read in the book of Genesis of Jacob kissing his sons and kissing his grandchildren and lamenting when they didn't have the opportunity to show that display of unity and love and affection. So there is this sense of greeting among family and close friends. Think of close friends. Think of David and Jonathan. And when they parted, they kissed one another because they knew the times were dangerous and Saul was out to kill them both. Or the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts chapter 20 when he sees the elders of the Ephesian church, the church that he'd stayed at the longest, and they knew that they would never see him again and they fell upon each other, embracing one another and kissing one another. It's a holy kiss because it's motivated by spirituality and not by sensuality. Not that sensuality is always bad, but there is the greeting, the common greeting, and the affection between close friends and family. And then you do have, of course, the kiss of romance. But it's interesting, it's, that's not found very often in the scriptures. Go to the Song of Solomon, and it is, that's the way it begins, with this with the wonderful expression of physical love between a husband and wife, very legitimate. The only other example of romantic kissing I could find in the Bible was actually in the life of Jacob. Remember Abraham's servant went out to find a bride for Jacob and found Rachel? And they came back and the scripture says, as Jacob saw that this was going to be the woman that he would wed, Jacob kissed Rachel and then he began to weep aloud. <laughs> How did Rachel feel when that happened? Was it that bad of a kiss? You know, he begins to weep, but those are probably tears of joy, right? The, the romantic says those were tears of joy. The cynic said, Jacob said to himself, now what have I gotten myself into? But that's a whole other situation. So you've got the greeting, the affection between family and close friends. You've got the 
romance in particular between a husband and wife, and then you also have the kisses of devotion. Interesting. In this category, I would put Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. That's referring to Jesus Christ, and it's referring to devotion, uh, paying homage, submitting to, following, kiss the son. Remember the woman in Luke chapter 7 who poured uh, ointment on the feet of Jesus, perfume, remember that? And covered his feet with kisses. And the disciples saw, wow, that." the disciples said, that's too much, you've gone overboard. And Jesus said, hey, wait a minute, when I came in here, none of you guys kissed me. But this woman is showing her great love. You also have the kiss of devotion toward idols. Like in 1 Kings 19, they worshiped Baal and kissed him. Or in Hosea, where we're told that they sinned more and more, they made idols for themselves out of silver and gold and kissed the idol calf. So you've got the, the kiss of greeting and the kiss of affection and the kiss of romance and the kiss of devotion, and there's one you know very well that I haven't mentioned. We'll call this the category of the kiss of deceit. What kiss do you think we're talking about now? The greatest act of treachery, the kiss of Judas to Jesus. Several verses in the scripture talk about that kiss in all of the gospels. And you have one example in the Old Testament where one of the military leaders, Joab, went to another military leader, Amasa, uh, and he kissed him and then stabbed him. And that's exactly what Judas did to Jesus. He gave him a kiss, but it was all deceit. And yet there's one verse in the Bible that talks about a kiss that defies all categories. At least doesn't fit any of our classification. And it's found in Psalm 85. So open your Bibles to Psalm 85. This kiss stands alone, and it is our kiss for this morning. Excuse me, our text for this morning. <laughs> Verse 10 of Psalm 85. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. If you don't have a Bible, we have it up on the screen. And here you have the divine attributes of God kissing one another. It doesn't fit into any of our categories. But it is one of the most outstanding kisses in the world. And it fits right with the communion service. So let's take a moment to look at this kiss. We see the jewel, but let's look at the setting. Uh, quickly to go through Psalm 85 and get some sense of what is happening where this wonderful verse is given to us. We're told at the very beginning that this is a psalm for the director of the choir, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Every time I read a psalm from one of the sons of Korah, I remember this, that Korah and Dathan and Abijah were rebellious leaders in the Old Testament. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 26. And they rebelled against God. And remember the earth opened and swallowed them up and 250 died. Do you remember that story? Numbers 26. And Dathan and his descendants died. And Abijah and his descendants died. And Korah died. But the Bible says the sons of Korah were rescued. 
They were not, they were not killed. What happened to the sons of Korah? They became guards in the temple and the musicians, the worship leaders in the temple service. And that's why they're writing the book of Psalms. And it is an amazing thing for me to think that those people sing best who wonder at their salvation most. Those people who, who are so amazed that God would save them sing the best, right? When your heart is touched by grace. And so we have a great song from the sons of Korah. There's structure to this psalm, and it actually is found in three different sections and kind of connected to the word land. Just notice in verse one, you've got the land in the past being favored. We're talking about the holy land. We're talking about the Bible lands, the land given to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. God in the past favored the land. Verse nine. They're hoping that glory will once again dwell in the land, but right now the land is empty. That's the present situation. And then finally, verse 12, the land will yield its harvest someday in the future. And so there's a look back and there's a look around and there's a look ahead. So let's follow that just quickly in our outline this morning. In the first three verses, you've got the psalmist recollecting, remembering what has taken place. This is the look back at former blessings. You showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. All the, verses in the, uh, all the verbs in the first three verses are past tense. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. There was a time when God's people were under his favor and the land was being blessed. Did you notice the verse one says, there was a time when you restored us? When you need to be restored, that means you're out of whack. When something needs to be restored, that means it's been somehow defiled, corrupted, out of sync. And what is this restoration we're talking about? Well, verse two, God forgave the sin of his people. He covered all of their sin. And I like that word selah, which means what? Well, think of that. It's kind of like, wow. Now, we don't know exactly when this time was. Some say it was the captivity when they were brought back from Babylon, but it could have been just one of the times when the enemies of God, like the Philistines, had dominated them, like in the book of Judges, and God delivered them and restored them, which happened repeatedly in the book of Judges, right? But the whole point is, God's people were out of whack. He restored them. The land once again was being blessed. God removed his iniquity. Get this, verse three. And you set aside your wrath. And you turn from your fierce anger. Does God ever get angry? Yes. He's a righteous, holy, and just God who cannot overlook sin. But he turned from his wrath and his fierce anger. There was a time of great blessing as they look back in the past. But now look around, verse four through nine. This is a look at the present distress. If it's a return from the captivity, those were difficult days, and the former glory was gone. 
And it wasn't like it was. So verse four, restore us again, like you did in the past, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure from us. Will you be angry for us, with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through every single generation? You see, the people were suffering because of the consequences of their decision, their sinful decisions. And God had now brought them back into the land or given them a time of peace, but the glory was gone. It wasn't like it was. And this is a classic text of a prayer for revival. It's a prayer that cries out to God, restore us again, O God. Verse six, revive us again. Will you not revive us again so that your people can rejoice in you? And the church of Jesus Christ today, like the Old Testament covenant people of God, Israel, the church needs to be revived. Oh, by the way, you're the church. We're so quick to say, yep, pastor, they do. Yes, they do. Let's get those people right. Now, you're the church. You, me, we need the blessing of God restored. And that's the prayer. Great revivals of the past always were preceded by the prayers of God's people. That's how they start. Revive us again. The yearning of the present is informed by the blessings of the past. You did it before. Do it again. Revive us again. Fill each heart with your love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. And that ought to be the prayer of God's people. Verse seven is really just like the prayer. Show us your unfailing love. The Hebrew word is hesed. It's God's loving kindness. Sometimes translated love or mercy. Both are included. It's God acting kindly to those who should receive judgment. It's God loving those who have proven to be his enemies and foes. Show us your unfailing love. Grant us your salvation. Revive us again. And then verse eight is, okay, I'm gonna wait for the answer to prayer. That's a great posture, by the way. It's the posture of faith. I will listen to what the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. We'll wait for God to answer. Surely, verse nine, his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may once again dwell in the land. By the way, the word dwell comes from the Hebrew word Shekinah. And Shekinah in the Old Testament was the word used to talk about God's glory dwelling with man. The glory of God came upon the temple. We read in Exodus chapter 40, and the glory of God departed from the temple. We read in Ezekiel chapter 9 and 10. Now revive us again. Fill this place with your glory. And by the way, when God comes down in glory and power, all arguments are useless. All arguments are, are needless. 
And that's what we pray, for the wonderful glory of God to come again. So he's confident that it's going to happen, that the empty land will once again be filled, that the wrath of God will not hang over them, that he will not continue his anger, his displeasure. Did you notice how many times those words are used? Three through five, wrath, fierce or burning anger, displeasure, angry, anger. (sighs) But you've got the anger of God in all those verses, and then verse seven, the love of God. We've seen your anger, show us your love. You say, well, that's an Old Testament doctrine, the anger of God. Oh, really? (laughs) Have you not read your New Testament? Romans chapter one, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 11 and verse 22 says, therefore consider both the goodness and the severity of God. And in that wonderful verse that we love to quote, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Verse 17, he came not into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever believes not is condemned already. Love and condemnation, goodness and severity, wrath and loving kindness, they go together in God, but they seem so distant and apart for us, don't they? They seem to clash. They seem like rivals that we somehow cannot harmonize. But surely, God will send us salvation. And then you come to verse 10 through 13. This is the future look. This is the look of head. And this is where we have our great text in verse 10. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss one another. These are conflicting attributes. Now I want to make it very clear they are not in conflict in the person of God for there's perfect harmony in him but from our vantage point they seem to collide. The idea of love or mercy as some translations have it verse 10 and faithfulness. Faithfulness to God's law. Faithfulness to his holy standard. Mercy and truth, that's the way it's translated in the old King James translation. And those two seem to be apart. God's faithfulness or God's truth causes him to always follow his righteous standard. Therefore, judgment seems to be the result. And by the way, righteousness and peace, you're really talking about the same thing. Faithfulness and righteousness go together as the attributes of God, and love and peace go together, and they seem to be on opposite teams, in collision. But in prayer, the psalmist says, they kiss each other. Isn't it amazing when rivals come together and embrace? I remember during the days of the Jimmy Carter administration when he sought to bring some degree of peace between Israel and Egypt. Do you remember that? And although we know that no true peace will ever come until Christ reigns, there was a moment of hope 
And there was even some movement in a positive direction until the Egyptian prime minister was killed and others got involved in the process. But there was, there was some joy that rivals could come together. That's what you've got here. Again, not in conflict in the person of God, but in conflict from, from our perception. These attributes are personified. They meet and they embrace and they kiss. It's the kiss of greeting. It's the kiss of affection. It's the kiss of unity and harmony and devotion to one another. This, my friend, is perhaps one of the most beautiful texts in all of the scripture to talk about God's amazing grace. Now, Luke chapter 24. Let me just share with you a great verse out of Luke 24. This is the two men on the road to Emmaus, or the two people on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus is walking with them, and they don't know it's Jesus, and they're upset because of the death of Christ, but they don't realize the resurrected Christ is walking with them. And they were complaining, and they were downcast, and Jesus said, you are so foolish because you don't understand the scriptures. You're slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken about me. So beginning with Moses and the prophets, he opened up the scriptures and talked about himself. In verse 44, everything must be fulfilled, Jesus said, that is written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and what? The Psalms. So when you read the Psalms, look for Jesus. Now, the unity here, the bringing together of wrath and love might have an immediate application to the nation of Israel when God did rescue them and bring them a time of peace in their land. But the ultimate picture, my friend, is Jesus Christ. Psalm 85 is a beautiful picture of Christ enduring our judgment and Christ giving us peace. Warren Worsby said, surely this is a glimpse here of the person and work of Jesus Christ, for only in him can mercy and truth become friends. Christ has taken both parties by the hand at Calvary and brought them together with a kiss. God is, God is so righteous, it's as though he's not gracious, and so gracious, it's as though he is not righteous. And they come together at the cross. Where's the wrath of God? Our sin is placed on Christ, and he becomes sin for us. And he not only has the horrible physical punishment, but the father turns his back on the son. And that's where the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus. Where's the love? He did it for you. He has no sin. And do you not see in the cross of Christ that the truth and righteousness of God kiss the mercy and the love of God in the person of Christ? They are totally reconciled. And it's only in the person of Christ that that could ever happen. In Jesus, the attributes of God unite in glad unanimity in the salvation of guilty sinners. They meet and embrace in such an inconceivable way that it could only be produced by God and grace. And there is no religion on the face of the earth that has a message like the gospel of Jesus 
The law demands. Jesus delivers. The law demands the anger and wrath of God demand a just price for sin, and Jesus pays it. And at the cross, they kiss. They embrace in deep affection to the salvation of our souls. Did you notice in this psalm that the people of God are mentioned three times? I find this instructive. In verse 2, it says that the people of God are forgiven. In verse 6, it says the people of God should rejoice. And in verse 8, it says the people of God, his saints, will be at peace. Sins forgiven, hearts filled with joy, resulting in peace, wonderful peace. The only peace that could possibly be produced like this must be produced by God himself. Oh, the beauty of the cross. Wait a minute. The cross is an ugly thing. Yeah. But the result is beautiful. And the holiness of God and the love of God kiss at the cross. Have you been embraced by that salvific kiss? That's the question. I love the story of the of a wagon train years ago that was heading westward and this wagon train peaked a hill and to their horror they looked and the prairie was filled with fire and it was fast advancing and there was no place to go and no way to get out of it. The wagon master said, quick, ride to the back of the wagon train and he did and, and he set the brush on fire behind the wagon train and the wind that was bringing the fire to them took the fire behind them away from them and in a few minutes, he ordered the wagon train to go back into that patch that just had been burned out behind them. A little girl that was in that wagon train was very frightened and she said, oh, oh sir, are we safe? And he said, yes, you are safe for you're standing where the fire has been. And when you stand in Jesus Christ, my friend, you are standing where the wrath of God has already taken place. And it's the only safe place in the universe, in Jesus, and in him alone. Praise God that mercy and truth and righteousness and peace have kissed together at the cross. Let's pray. O oh Lord, revive the work of your hands in this place by the message of the gospel. Lord, I pray that each one of us would see today your rich mercy toward us as sinners. That once experiencing forgiveness, we would rejoice, and when we experience forgiveness, we would be at peace. Your shalom would fill our hearts and minds. Oh God, what you've done in the past, do, do again. Save sinners. 
and restore saints. In Jesus' name, amen.